The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Beth Hoffman. She is a journalist, a former professor at the University of San Francisco, and now a resident of Iowa and a new farmer. We'll be talking about her book, Beth the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. Welcome, Beth. Thanks. I'm excited to talk to you today. This is such an important book because I think what you have uniquely done is you've exposed the economics of farming as well as the history of agriculture in the United States. And I rarely read or learn about these aspects of farming. And I think anybody who eats should understand those two facets of our food system. But I'm curious to know, what was burning inside you that led you to write this book? Well, as you said, I was a professor in San Francisco and a journalist, and I had been covering food and agriculture for probably 20 years. And my husband, I'll describe in the book what he convinced me to move to Iowa, which is kind of a long story, but we moved to Iowa and came to work on the farm. And as we started to put together our business plan with actually my mother, who's a CPA, we started to really look at, you know, adding up our costs, our profits, and was realizing that there was very little money that we were going to be making, even after we paid off buying the cattle, for example, uh, was a, a large cost that we had. And I just, from that moment, I just remember feeling like, really? Is this what's going on? I, how come I've been doing this kind of journalism for so long, and I've never really gotten the memo that this was actually not a viable profession for most farmers, financially speaking. And so it just really was a big wake-up call for me that I felt like there's always a conversation about farmers struggling in this country, but it's usually framed as something that's going on this year, like this year is a problem, or five years was a problem, there were tri- problems with trade, the weather's not good, whatever whatever the, the conversation is, but there's rarely a conversation about how pervasive the problem of financial viability on a farm actually is. And I felt like every step of the way, as I looked into it, I was just surprised every time. And I just started thinking, wow, if I'm just learning this after covering this for so long, then I really feel like probably most people don't know these things and it should be discussed. So it was really those aha moments that started adding up for me and led me to write the book. Well, we should explain to our listeners how you got from this really what sounds like a wonderful life in San Francisco. You had a great job with benefits. You had access to a wonderful food network. 
And you moved halfway across the country to a very different place. How did you get from San Francisco to Iowa and this particular farm? Well, like most stories like this, it was all about love and meeting my husband and falling in love. And even though from probably the first five minutes that I met him, he had just returned from a trip to the farm with his boys and said, you know, I love Iowa. It probably said something like, Iowa? Like, I, I never really had thought about Iowa. And so he, and then he immediately told me how he really wanted to move back and take over the farm when his boys were old enough, when they had graduated high school. So I didn't think too much of it. We were just neighbors. But as we fell in love and, and got married, that was always there. It was always present, this move to Iowa. And we started spending summers on the farm. And I just started really building a bit of my own relationship with the place and try, and seeing what could be possible based on the knowledge I had from traveling around and talking to farmers and being on a lot of farms. And thinking I knew a lot about farming, I could kind of see how it might work. And it started to feel like a bit of a gift that we were being given to put all of these ideals into practice. John also had left the farm, moved to San Francisco, and gone to culinary school. So he was he is a trained chef. He worked in white tablecloth restaurants for years and then was a wine buyer, and most recently had been a butcher for 12 years. So combined, we had a lot of knowledge about food, and then so it seemed, yeah, like an exciting thing we could do, except when we started looking at the spreadsheets and realizing how it might end up taking our retirement fund with it or being stuck here. We didn't really know how it was going to work out. Mm. Yeah. And you describe yourselves actually as privileged farmers because your father-in-law owns the farm outright. And you're coming to this part of the country where, you know, the Midwest, where you're white, you look like everybody else. Describe how you see your privilege in addition to already having the land and being white. Yeah. I mean, we have some family wealth which is something that was built up over generations, particularly in my family, that many families of color have not had the ability to do because of different reasons. Uh, some of it I'll get into now about the land as well, but owning the land outright as well is something that is I see as a very privileged thing because families were allowed to have loans. And in the 80s, for example, during the farm crisis, the government was there, the banks were there, they helped families, white families in particular, stay on the land. And that's not just touting about white privilege. It is an actual fact if you look at the discriminatory practices that have been in the USDA that have been very well documented. So during that same period that John's family was getting to have these kinds of loans and supports and programs and advice. And there were a lot of families of color, particularly black farmers and, of course, indigenous farmers that were here long before, well, when his family arrived, 
those families had not been able to build the wealth or maintain the land ownership over these generations, which makes it extremely difficult to get into the game now that prices are so high. There was a piece of land just recently sold in Iowa, northern Iowa, for something like $12,000 an acre, uh, which is on California kind of prices, but it's just not a possibility for most people to invest in. It was a hedge fund, I believe, that purchased that piece of land. There was competition between the neighbors trying to bid on the land, and then when they saw these outside groups bidding on it, they all dropped out of the bidding war. So it's almost an impossibility to get in and purchase land at this point. And because of the continued discriminatory practices at banks and the USDA, there's still issues going on. It's even more difficult for farmers of color. So there's a lot of privilege that came with us moving to this piece of land in Iowa. I want to go back to the economic piece because I was actually surprised by the early mentioned statistic that in 2019, half of America's 2 million farms made less than $300. Yeah. Was it a surprise to you? (laughs) Yes. Right. That was one of those aha, like, what? Well, how could that actually be? And in having a lot of conversations now about the book, people have been pointing out, rightly so, that there's a fair amount of farms, a growing amount of farms that actually make nothing, like like literally make zero, because they are tax shelters for people, claim that they are farms, and then just to have the this, this sort of benefits of of having a farm piece of land that's under that heading of being a farmland. The fact that I'd like to bring up as a accompanying fact is that in 2020, though, the median income, so that halfway mark, was a negative $1,248. Wow. So farmers, half of all farmers made less than $1,248, which indicates to me, actually, that those farms that make zero were above the median average, not below. They're not taking up a lot of space and draw and sucking down the median data-wise. So I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. You know, I have to look more into that. I think there's a lot of researchers trying to drill into those numbers because it doesn't really make sense how many of those farms are actually active farms and how many of those farms are tax write-offs. So, but yes, back to the question, though, at hand is like, how could that be? Is that surprising? It's shocking. It's absolutely shocking, not only as a researcher and a journalist, but as a beginning farmer, a lot of what you see in the media is discussions about the ecology of farming the movie's like the biggest little farm, right? It's right. like a very exciting, like, wow, I want to do that. It's beautiful. You can have animals working on your farm to help you kill the snails, for example, right? But the economics of it don't pencil out in many cases. And for that farm in particular, for the biggest little farm that they spent zero time talking about the money involved in that farm, to me, is just 
it's really sad because we could be educating people about that at the same time as talking about the ecology. They don't have to be two separate things. Right. They should be interwoven in what we're trying to, and when we're trying to find solutions, they have to go hand in hand. Well, you know, I was really fascinated by several chapters of your book. One had to do with farm subsidies because I don't understand them and I wanted to learn more about them. The other one was the price of sustainable farming. And the third was working off the farm. And, you know, you've got statistics, which are also quite alarming about the huge percentage, 93% of farm families have one person at least working off the farm so that people can survive and most importantly, gain access to health insurance. Correct. Yes. So the health insurance piece is huge, particularly, you know, when you think about beginning farmers, particularly those people who want to do sustainable farming, and you mentioned the surprises there, it's just that sustainable farming, when you're using organic practices or not using chemicals, it's much more labor and time intensive, much more. To, to rotate our cattle daily takes much more time than opening up a huge pasture and letting the animals just be there for three weeks. And you check on them occasionally. Yep, they're all there, and that's about it. Instead, going and moving fence every single day takes multiple hours. You know, some farms, very large farms, like I know at White Oak Pastures, they use a lot of permanent fencing, but still, you're moving them every day, every day, every day. So the labor is a lot as well. So when you look at those kinds of costs, they really, really add up. And when you think about as a sustainable beginning farmer who wants to have a diversified bunch of different things going on on their farm, if you also have to go to the job to have the health insurance, you don't have the time to invest in that farm. And so you never get to really scale up or you never really get to invest the energy in coming up with ways that would maybe save you time in the long run. So it's this sort of spiral kind of a situation where they're, they're just not very complementary. And the other piece of it is this off-farm income that is what was really interesting to me. It's like, sure, you know, okay, that's great that families, you know, most families have two people working. So what's different about this with farm families? Well, what was fascinating about it was to learn that that income that's coming from off the farm is not just to support the family. It is to support the actual farm. Mm -hmm. The farm doesn't pay for itself. It can't cover the cost of a $200,000, a $500,000 combine. Mm -hmm. That off-farm job is what is paying those bills. Wow. Beth, let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Beth Hoffman. She is a journalist and a new farmer, and we are talking about her book, titled Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. I think we should probably launch into some of the myths around farming based on your previous statements that you bring home. And this is probably one of the most important pieces of this book. 
the first myth that I want to jump on is this idea of the agrarian myth, and that is that we are all rugged individuals, that actually we work better in cooperation rather than competition, but it's this competition or that competitive narrative seems to to drive the story of farming. Yeah, you know, it was very interesting to think about, particularly in the sustainable agriculture world, but it's in other parts, conventional ag as well, that we have back from the time of Thomas Jefferson was writing letters to people talking about how virtuous farmers were and they're sort of the heart of democracy. They embody everything that is good in this country, he was saying. And that myth has been perpetuated ever since, really. And today we see it a lot. And when we see these kinds of videos of homesteading and these beautiful blogs about just, you know, very good things. There was a Washington Post article recently about people who write these beautiful blogs. They don't talk about any of the negatives of farming. They just talk about the positives and how they have such growing followers. The problem with this myth is that Oh, I also want to add that part of this myth has also become that farmers have the responsibility of feeding their communities, of nourishing their communities, healthy, fresh vegetables. We have the responsibility of being stewards of the land and taking care of the ecology of our land. And so what's happened in a lot of cases with this myth is is that people enter into farming with these romantic visions of it. They've just watched all of those homesteading videos, and they come into it thinking that if I just do, again, the biggest little farm sort of idea, if I just, like, utilize the ecology, I get it rolling, it's all going to sort of take care of itself because Mother Nature will dictate what's going on on the farm and, and have everything kind of work better than it had been with chemicals. The problem is and researchers have looked into this, is that when people start having their goals around farming to be taking care of the environment, and that's really essentially their focus and their only goal, they end up doing what what the researchers are calling self-exploiting themselves. They work themselves into the ground, trying to do a thousand different endeavors, a Joel Salatin model, these different kinds of where you have, you know, diversity on the farm. And people can't actually, they don't have a focus on taking care of themselves and making money for their futures, their families. And it ends up being that many, many, many beginning farmers actually leave farming in a very quick time, three to five years, because of that high level of stress. And when you see people talk about farming and they say things like, well, it's not about the money or I'm not growing food just for the wealthy, so I've got to have my prices be really low. Well, if your price is below the cost of production, that's not a viable business and that can't be sustained over time. Mm. Are there government programs or subsidies of a sort that reward farmers for good ecological practices and even more so producing food of high quality versus quantity? 
There are lots of programs. We just enrolled in something called the CSP. So that means we have a five-year period where we are being paid to transition land to, we have one for butterfly habitat. So it pays us to put in seeding that promotes monarchs and other butterflies in the area. For example, the other one was to retrofit fencing so that it's no longer barbed wire, more habitat friendly for wildlife. And as part of that, we also get payments for the existing things that we are already doing. So it's not like it's only for changing what we were doing. So there are programs. If you look in the book, I have, there's a chart that sort of shows you how much of the farm bill goes to these different things. And it's much smaller kind of money we're talking about than there is, say, for crop insurance. Crop insurance is a gigantic well, comparatively large slice of the pie. The SNAP program and nutrition programs is actually by far the largest chunk of the pie at like 75%. So there are programs. What we found the difficulty is, is that you're very much reliant as a farmer on the resources that you have access to in your county. We have finally ended up with, after maybe, I think there was at least four, maybe five different people in the three years we have been here that have been at the head of the NRCS office for the USDA for our county. The three before had no real interest in particularly environmental programs or really researching it with us and learning about the different programs that were available because they didn't already know. The person who's there now, we hope stays, there's rumors he's not even going to stay, he is much more excited about things like grass finishing beef and pasture raising animals and is interested in learning more about prairie and those kinds of things. So It really, really depends on the individuals in the office and them having the excitement, the education, and actually the time, the amount of paperwork that goes on in that office. It's it's a bureaucracy, like you might as well be at the DMV for a lot of it. Like it's such a thick bureaucracy that they have very little time to explore and learn In fact, we were just told that they have even more money now. There's being all this money released for these kinds of programs. They don't have the personnel to handle the money they have now, let alone doubling that in the coming years. So I don't know how well that'll actually filter down to a county like ours. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the other myth that you bring forth, and that is this myth of bigger is better. And you go through and explain all of the reasons why bigger is not better. Yeah. Well, I tried to. Yes, there's an ongoing thought in agriculture that bigger is better. And I think even that people who are part of the sustainable food world, we just uh, we all kind of accept that it's true, that there's this sort of idea that once a farm gets to a certain size, like if you just keep if you keep growing, you're going to spread your costs out across lots of acreage, let's say, and then you'd be making a lot more per acre. Um, you have what people call an economy of scale. And so 
how this is shown in everyday life in farm country is that everybody goes out, gets a new loan, and buys new machinery, takes out loan for better seeds, the chemicals that goes with those seeds, and then they rent out land or buy land all over the place to have a larger and larger farm. And this is just a very accepted practice. If you talk to agricultural economists, a lot of them promote this idea. You have to get bigger. The problems with this is mo- many problems with it. Just on a very practical level, like we can't all have an economy of scale. It just doesn't work that way. It means by definition that many farmers in every region have to go out of business and that others can take over. So that's just a conceptual problem that if we really don't want that, and I don't think that anybody, even in rural communities, I don't think that they actually want that. So if we don't want that, we can't accept that as the doctrine. That's one problem. But really on a practical level, what you see is that what happens is with bigger equipment, with more land, with better seeds, you produce more and more and more. And if just the most basic economic theories of supply and demand, once you have too much supply, the demand starts going down. And what ends up happening is you have prices start going down to match the lack of demand. And this happens all the time in farming. You have way too much supply of products and the prices go down. What's interesting in agriculture as opposed to manufacturing maybe, manufacturing, that happens, the price goes down. Manufacturers typically then stop making as many products right? Because you're trying to, you don't want products that are worth nothing on the market. Farmers often double down and produce more. They go out, you have to get the bigger equipment now because my profit margins are so slim that I've got to produce actually more. So the oversupply problem gets exacerbated. The market prices continue to drop. And you can see this all over. What's interesting as well is when the prices start going up, like right at this moment, there's pretty good prices for corn and soybeans, the input costs now just went through the roof again. Still, then your profit margin shrinks immediately. You just got it going and making something that was decent, and now you're going to be paying that out in fertilizer costs, for example. Mm. So the whole myth of keeping up with the Joneses just makes us all earn less when there could be ways of limiting supplies, working together more, and making the products actually have more value. Can I just add one more thing? Sure. In the years when we talk about, like people like to talk about the years of Earl Butts in the 1970s, and he told everybody, plant fence row to fence row. And What was very interesting about that time was that prices did go up, the subsidy payments went dramatically down, and it was because he actually went out and marketed around the world and doubled the amount of export. That is no longer a possibility. There is no one else to double exports in our sales to. There's no more products 
that are coming out of corn that are going to increase the sales that much that we need this excess of supply. Well, Beth, unfortunately, we must close. I've got to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Beth Hoffman, and we have been talking about her book, Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. Beth, thank you so much for being my guest. You're welcome. I enjoyed it.